Okay, today I want to talk a little bit about guilt, and I also want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, Jesus that took away the sin of the world, and we took sin upon him in baptism and connected to tithing, and uh, you know what tithing is all about. One of the most destructive forces that there is, is fear. Fear. The Bible says, fear involves torment uh, because we have not been made perfect in the love of God. The moment we understand the agape love of God, the first thing that will leave you is fear. You know, and I found that fear is a platform for guilt. Guilt and obligation. And guilt is such a destructive force. You know, we have, we've, we've, we've seen guilt, and I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit about that, almost as something pious. We saw guilt as something that, you know, at least when I do something wrong, I feel guilty about it. You know, uh, meaning it's your kind of your, your penance, you know, towards the wrong that you've done. I'll pay with feeling guilty for a day. And then I can feel good again because I felt guilty for a day. I remember when I was in Bible school and I was this very spiritual guy. And, um, you know, if I would do something wrong, it would be difficult for me to pray for two or three days. And I would feel, at least God can see, how sorry I feel for what I've done. And then when He sees my heart in the sorrow and the guilt I carry, you know, um, then He will forgive me and I made guilt my savior because guilt was the one that would what I was think think save me from the anger and wrath and punishment that comes from God and uh, in in some way we have incorporated guilt into our gospel you know where we feel guilty when it comes to going to church, where we feel guilty when it comes to supporting missions, where we feel guilty, uh, you know, in, in, in our financial contribution towards the church. The worst thing you can ever do is to start your month with guilt. And what I mean by that is, if you get your money, um, for those of you that are here for the first time now, I'm in a series on finances, so uh, I'll talk about money this Sunday and the next Sunday, and after that I'm going to start another series on something different. But um, when we look at money and we look at the beginning of the month, if you start your month with guilt, if you start feeling, I am indebted to God, if you start your month with, I am behind paying God what, is, what I owe Him, you know, your whole life will be flooded with the guidance of guilt. I've got some notes here that I want to just read to you. Guilt is a very important factor in contributing to obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms. You know, I got this from, um, from a website on, on psychology, and this is what they've come to realize. You know, they said guilt is a very important factor in contributing to obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms. Guilt is a state in which somebody lives when he experiences conflict in his inner man because he thinks he should have done something which he didn't do. Now, if guilt is a conflict in the inner man, you know, I can think of Romans 7 where the Bible talks about the conflict that was in the heart of Paul. 
Paul said that when he, when he became legalistic again, and when he started to embrace the Ten Commandments, after he's come to the knowledge of grace, and he tried to obey the Tenth Commandment, which said, you shall not desire, he found an inner conflict inside him. He said, the good that I wanted to do, I could not do, and that which I didn't want to do, that I did. And to me, that spells guilt. You know, guilt is not something that, uh, and this is my definition of guilt, guilt is not something that happens to you once you've committed a sin. Guilt is something that happens to you the moment you become legalistic. You don't have to do something wrong before you feel guilty. You must just feel, I owe something. I am obligated to. And the emotion of guilt, the root of guilt, uh, comes into your heart. Guilt is the unconscious force within an individual that contributes to illness and most psychological disorders. It's an, it's a, it's, it's an uh, uh, unconscious force. It's not something that we consciously feel. And I found so many times when it comes to God, especially to God, there is this unconscious force that drives people, you know, called guilt. And it's unconscious. It's not, you don't know about it. It's in the subconscious mind, you know. And that can only be present in the, uh, um, in the atmosphere where you are obligated or where you need to measure up to a certain standard. Guilt cannot exist in the Trinity. It is impossible. Because the one doesn't feel he owes the other one anything, neither is there a set of rules on how any one of them should act. Because of the life that is in these three beings, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the way uh, faith has been this, uh, shed abroad in their lives, the way the foundation of love is present, you know, in their lives, there is no such a thing as the Father telling the Son, if you do this and if you do that, then I will do this and then I will do that. You see, if you want to get guilt out of your life, you must get the system that contributes or gives life to guilt out of your life. Guilt is not something you can decide not to have. You know, we've taken second, uh, uh, second um, sorry, Romans 8 verse 1 where the Bible says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We've taken that verse and what we've said is, um, in, in, um, in grace circles, we've basically said, listen, if I do something wrong, I don't have to feel guilty. And what people actually ran off with was, even if I live under the law and bear the fruit of the flesh, I don't have to feel guilty. Listen, if you live under the law, if you bear the fruit of the flesh or not, you're going to feel guilty all the time. You're going to feel guilty towards how you raise your kids. You're going to feel guilty towards how you love your wife and your husband. And guilt will be the foundation of your life and it shall destroy you. I think the obstacle of the unconscious force of guilt is the most powerful of all obstacles to overcome. It would be impossible to overcome outside of believing the true gospel. Guilt is the conflict in the emotions that all people will have once they are under a rule-keeping system. Guilt is very closely related to obligation and indebtedness. You don't have to do something right or wrong in order to feel guilty. 
Indebtedness is not a feeling that comes once you have done something wrong, but it's a state in which one feels a demand towards a certain system. As what, and this is important, as what the Holy Spirit is your guide under grace, guilt is your conscience once you're under legalism. You see, guilt has got a voice. Guilt can lead you. Guilt can tell you what to do. Guilt can give birth to your life. Fear and guilt goes hand in hand. Once you are afraid of God, I do understand the scripture says that we should fear the Lord. That word fear means to have reverence or respect. Now you can't have reverence or respect for somebody that doesn't have reverence or carry himself in a way that you can revere him. You know, how can you have respect for somebody that will kill your children? Somebody that got ticked off at Adam and now he just needs somebody, somebody to kill. And then Jesus said, well, Father, because you got so upset and you really need to kill somebody, you can kill me and feel better. You know, you cannot have respect for such a person. You cannot have honor for such a person. Honor and respect is something that rises in your heart when you see something that is honorable. You can only believe in someone that is believable. Any other thing would just be, um, excuse the word here, but it would be raping your conscience. Wherein you say, well, I'm trusting this person, although all the attributes about him tells your heart you cannot trust him because he will allow sickness, he will allow disease, he's going to test you, he's going to put you through hard times to purify you, he's going to do all those kind of things. It will be impossible for you to trust such a person. It would be as what a lady or a wife must trust the husband after he sees all the time the hair of another woman, you know, on his clothes, you know, when he comes comes back from a trip or finds another woman's clothes in his suitcase or things like that. And then he says, nothing is wrong. Everything is okay. I don't know how it got there. And then you say, well, I trust him. I just can't. There's no reason to trust him. There's no reason to have respect for him or honor for him because there's no, there's no facts, there's no substance in your trust. So when we fear God or have reverence towards God, it is not supposed to be just a decision of the will. It must also be something that's based on some facts. You know, here is a being that came and gave his, his life to deliver you while you were yet a sinner. Here is a being that didn't walk in the consciousness of sin when he found a woman caught in the very act of adultery and he removed those that accused her from her and gave her life. Here is a being that came and uh, 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 was this super, super, this spirit being incarnated himself into human flesh so that he could dwell and fellowship with us and make us his friends. Now when you get those things in front of you, you put those facts down, then you start to realize that it's very easy to have reverence for God. When we look at fear and we look at um, guilt, you will find that guilt is as much a voice to those that are under the law as what the Holy Spirit is the voice of God to those that are living free from guilt and condemnation. I remember years ago when I was still in Bible school, I wanted to evangelize the world. 
And I just felt that God gave me His Son. And if God gave me His Son, you know, and did everything for me, then I must at least go and do something for somebody else. It was not out of a revelation of the value of the other person. It was an indebtedness. I felt I owe God. I must do something for Him. You know, if we, um, in marriage counseling, you will see that the first thing that any counselor would like to get out of the relationship between the husband and the wife is guilt. Because the moment there's guilt, there cannot be a healthy relationship. The moment the husband is at work and he comes home, you know, and he feels guilty because he's worked too long, you know, or he's been away too long, um, you know, and, and he comes home, then he will start to mow the lawn, which he would normally not do, because he feels guilty. And at least the lawn is mowed, but the guilt will f- frustrate him. And what's going to happen is, not long, not long after that, a month or two down the line, you're going to find that he becomes very nitpicking concerning the stuff his wife does. Because he hates what he's doing, for he's born out of guilt. And at the end of the day, the marriage cannot work. And unfortunately, we've used this very system of guilt in the church, maybe not willfully, but that is what has happened. And we find that the number one thing that has hurt people in church is money. Number one thing. The other day I had a person say to me, Matthew, why do you want to have a whole series on finances again? You know, uh, why talk about money? I said, number one, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Not some evil, all evil. All evil's root is the love of money. So if there's some evil somewhere, the love of money must have something to do with it. Okay? So I don't think you're missing the mark in talking about finances, you know, in rooting up some evil that there is. And number two, money is the very thing everybody needs all the time. And if you connect guilt with money... As long as what you've got money somewhere or anything to do with money, you will have guilt. And if you connect these two with God, at the end of the day, God is going to irritate the life out of you. Church is going to irritate you. I'm not against giving. Those of you that listen to my messages, you know that very well. We don't want the guidance of guilt. I remember years ago, like I said, I, I would go out and preach. I would think, no, you know, I, I owe God. I feel indebted. If I didn't do it, I feel guilty. I would decide, you know, um, in a, a moment of greatness that I'm going to pray, you know, so much. And I'm going to do so much Bible study. And we're going to do so many outreaches in a year. And then when it doesn't work out, you know, then I feel guilty. And what the guilt does after I felt guilty long enough, it gives me a a, a sense of, okay, I felt guilty long enough, God accepts me now. And once I'm in that presence of acceptance, instead of enjoying acceptance, I think, well, I need to raise the bar even higher to do even more for God. And eventually, you die. Guilt is not your pious action towards the bad that you have done, but it is the unseen force driving you to full destruction. We can never and should never incorporate this into receiving money from people. It will destroy people. 
It will destroy our lives. So, with, with that in mind, let's quickly... Let me see if I wrote that verse down. I think I put it on my notes here. I want to just quickly read a verse from um, Joshua 3. This is where... And I spoke a little bit about this in some... I think in another service. I've just mentioned it quickly. This is where the people went from the promised land into, uh, from the desert into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River. And it came to pass when the people um, removed from their tents to pass over the Jordan, and the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as they bear the Ark were come unto the Jordan, and their feet of the priest that bare the ark was dipped in the in the brim of the water. The Jordan overflowed all its banks. Um, all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon the heap very far, and the, um, from the city far up to the city Adam, that is beside Zeratan. So what it says here is that they took the ark. And as they went into the river for the people to pass, and as the priests put their feet in the, in the Jordan River, the river started to dam up. And the river was already overflowing its banks. It was already full river. And as they went into the river, it was like you put a dam wall there. And this river would just dam up to a place called Adam, which is very significant. And then the people crossed over on dry ground. Very significant. Especially in the light of John the Baptist. The place where these people crossed over the Jordan River was the exact place where John the Baptist was baptizing. It was called the place of the crossing. And there's a lot of significance in this. There's a type and a shadow uh, concerning this. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he was baptized, and many of you heard me say this, he was baptized with a baptism of sinners. What actually happened there was, these people were afraid for the coming of the Messiah. Because they knew, as Jews, that you had to keep the law to be partakers of what was called the Olam Haba, which is the reign of the Messiah. So for them to be a partaker of this messianic grain, although they were Jews, they had to keep the law. And they knew they could not keep the law, and then you could go to John the Baptist, and you could repent of all your sins, and be baptized as a sig- signifying that I am a sinner, and my sins are being washed away now, and now at least I'm clean enough for the Messiah to come. And then, I mean, so that was the baptism of the sinner. And here was John baptizing people. They were confessing their sins and they were baptized. Now, what, what is significant to me is in uh, uh, um, Joshua there, the water dammed up to a little town called Adam. So what it is talking about, I believe it talks about sin. It talks about sin. When the priests came in and the people had to cross over into the promised land, the flow of sin had to stop. And the priests that went into the river signifies Jesus, which is our priest, the carrier of the covenant. 
For the covenant was between the Father and Jesus. The Bible says the promise was not made as, the promise was made to Abraham and his seed, not as unto many seeds, but as unto one, which is Jesus. So here's Jesus, the carrier of the covenant. He put his feet into the water, signifying the sin of man. The moment he walked into the sin of man, not by him sinning, but by him representing man under sin, the sin that he walked into damned up to the original sin. And then he was baptized into the original sin, carrying the sin of the whole human race thus stopping the flow of all sin forever. And then those that followed him crossed over into the promised land on dry ground. (laughs) What that means is that because of Jesus, the sin was not on the people and they could enter into the promised land sinless because of the Lamb of God. You know, I've said it many times, John didn't write in John 1, 29, um, or even John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus uh, came, he said, walking into the Jordan, he said, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He didn't say that because he had, he smoked too much wheat that morning. <laughs> he said that because it is so. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. And can you see the prerequisite that there must be in order for us to enter into what God has promised us? You need to be sinless. And the only way you could ever become sinless is if somebody could stop the flow of sin even from Adam. Damn it all up. Be baptized into it, and then walked into the desert carrying away the sin of all people. And for three years, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the sin of all of mankind was not on man, but on him. John, uh, Matthew 9, he heals the sick. He, uh, after healing the sick, the Bible says there, and this was to fulfill Isaiah 53, where it says, He carried my sickness and bore my diseases. He carried, wow, in Matthew 9, He carried it already. And then sickness and disease died in the cross. Glory to God. Jesus did all those miracles, not because of the fact that He just had the Holy Spirit, but he, what also contributed to Him being able to do miracles was the fact that those that He performed the miracles on were innocent. Because Jesus carried their sin. <laughs> this message makes me extremely happy. I feel joy in my heart when I think of this. You see, I'm talking about guilt today and money. Outside of no shadow of a doubt that I'm innocent before God, you will still have the root of guilt. And you will not know, is it God guiding me or is it guilt guiding me? You will find a life that is born from I feel obligated instead of Feeling unloved. 
I've said it many times when I preach Jesus Christ took the sin of the world upon him in baptism, I'm not taking away the, anything from the cross. I am magnifying the cross. Because, you know, we might think, here was Jesus, he, he performed all these miracles because he was so holy and all those kind of things. And Jesus was holy, he is holy. But this very holy being took the sin of the whole world upon him. If you go and look at uh, Leviticus 16, which is the greatest explanation of the scapegoat, this is what it says. You took, there was two goats, one for God and one for the prince of darkness which lived in the desert. Okay, Leviticus 16. Then they would cast lots, and the one would fall on God, that one was slaughtered there, and the other one, also signifying what Jesus Christ came to do, hands was laid, both hands was laid on the head of that goat, Sin, the sins of the whole nation, not just an individual, of the whole nation, was confessed onto the head of that lamb, or of, of that ram, or a goat. Then that goat... They would use a, a, a good guy. A good man would take that goat and lead him into the desert. Where he would meet with the prince of darkness and die. And here comes Jesus, baptized in the Jordan River. John takes his two hands, put it on his head, baptize him into the sin that damned up unto Adam. The sin of all people for all time, even unto the original, was put on the head of this goat. And then he went into the desert, led by a very good guy called the Holy Spirit, to be tempted of the devil. And in the state of carrying sinful flesh, representing every sinner that it could ever be, he was tempted by the devil and he conquered. In not settling to find his life based on how he could do a miracle or his works. But he said, I don't live by the ability to do miracles, but I live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And then from there, Matthew 4, Matthew 5, 6, you find signs, wonders and miracles all the time when he was proving that he has already bound the strong man, which is sin and Satan and Three years later, he took all of the guilt of man, and we could see the man under the law. We could see his blood flow out of him. And we could vividly see him die. So that we never have to be sin conscious ever again. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 that the worshippers, once purged, shall have no more consciousness of sin. And the Bible says, He, through one sacrifice, once and for all, cleansed us. John 1, uh, 1 John 2 verse 2. He was not just a propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Is it okay to tell that to the world? <laughs> We want to just have that for the church. No, no, no. That is for the world. Glory to God. And I'm not going to be ashamed of sharing that with the world. We tell the world 
that their sins was on Jesus. We tell the world that Jesus carried their sins. We tell the world that their sins were taken from them. We tell the world that all their guilt and all their shame has died upon the cross. The life of that guilt flowed out of, out of him. He was completely dead. You know, the way in which the blood washes our minds is like this. You know, I think it was about five years, no, seven years ago maybe, six years ago, I was taking my kids to school. And this one guy stood next to the road. He was an elderly guy, I guess about 80. Couldn't see very well and he was deaf. And didn't see me come and he walked right in front of my car and I killed him. You know, when I look back at that, I remember Aubrey got such a fright, he jumped, and it was a busy road, he jumped out of the car, ran over the road and ran back in the, into the car again. You know, it was just like this terrible thing that was happening. And I walked to, to this guy's body, he was lying in the road. And I saw his body mingled up because he went under the car, and I saw his blood flow out of him. He was dead. And the half the road was covered in blood. In my mind, you can never tell me that he's living today in a physical human body on this earth. I saw him die. His blood that flowed out of him erased every thought in my mind that he could ever be alive in a human body today. In the very same way, the blood of Jesus washes our minds from every thought that there could ever be any possibility that I am a lawman or that my sin is alive. It died. The blood flowed out of him. It's finished. We must get rid of guilt. First, the river must be dammed up. Jesus did it so that we can cross over without having a drop of water on our bodies on dry land guilt free living now when it comes to tithing and we're going to have a look at Malachi 3 <clears throat> quickly and we look at money we cannot have the slightest hint the slightest form of guilt when it comes to finances because we will find that people will never cross over into what God has promised them concerning peace in their finances if we've got some form of hint of we owe God anything. You know, I mean, how do you Engels om to get binnengemeenschap van goederen? In community of property, married in, in community of property. You know, when God married man, He married us in community of property, not outside of. Meaning that He owns holiness, He owns righteousness, He owns life, He owns love, but He's married us, but we aren't co owners of it. And should we behave, then He will share a bit of what He possesses with us. No. When we were united with God in Christ, when we married God, we were married inside the community of property. Not outside. We both own holiness now. Yes, sir. 
He's not the sole owner of holiness. We are co-seated. Aren't we co-heirs? What does co-heir means? Co-owner. We, we aren't commanded. We, we, we don't sit with this command, you better be holy. No, no. You are now an owner of holiness. You are an owner of righteousness. Let this be the revelation that washes your mind from every form of guilt. Glory to God. How can we owe God 10% of our money? It is impossible. <laughs> we are co-owners of all the wealth that there could possibly be. You cannot owe God your money. It is impossible. It is outside of God's logic. It's outside of family logic. It's outside of relationship logic. You can never do that. And to say, and I, I spoke about this on this two weeks ago, that the tithe belongs to God, thinking that we must give the church 10% you know, of our money because it belongs to God, will dump you in a place where you start every month with, I owe God. I feel guilty. Let the love of God set you free from all guilt. Sometimes fear of not having is the father of our so-called generosity because unless we give, God cannot provide for us. God provides for us on the basis of who He is. Not what we do. The scripture is clear, but my God shall meet all your needs according to His riches, which is in His glory, by what? By Christ Jesus. Glory to God. And I say this, for those of you watching via the web, I say this not because I'm antagonistic towards any system. I'm saying this because I want to embrace what God has given for the church and for man. That we can see the fruit of eternal life being born in the lives of people from the foundation of true innocence and union with God. Glory to God. Malachi 3. Malachi 3 from verse 8 it says, Will a man rob God? You have robbed me, but you say, Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithe into the storehouse, there might be meat in my house. And prove me now here with, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, and he shall not destroy the fruit of your ground, neither shall your vine cast the fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that verse is such a beautiful verse pointing to Jesus Christ and the cross. It's a million times closer related to communion than to giving money to the church. When you look at Malachi 3, and we read from verse 1, we see the following. We say, we see it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. 
So if you read chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Behold, I sent my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. If you read the New Testament, you will see the Bible says that is John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord. So Malachi 3 here is a prophetic word. You know Malachi is a prophet? Like, it's, small, it's called a small prophet. And Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Does that include Malachi? Oh yeah, okay. Does it include chapter 3 of Malachi? Let's get even closer. Does that include chapter 3 verse 10 in Malachi? Or is that excluded because Abraham died before the law? Because that's the, that's the only thing you can ever do is... If you don't know what to say, just say Abraham died before the law. No, it is included. It is included in the small prophets. And Jesus Christ came to fulfill this verse. He came and when Jesus read Malachi, he didn't read it to see what others must do. He read Malachi to see what he must do. If you go and read Psalm 40, Psalm 40 is one of the key Psalms in the whole of the Bible to understand the Old Testament and what the law really is. Jesus comes and he says, Father, you have opened my ears, you've opened my eyes, I understand what this whole thing is about, you don't want sacrifice, you don't want offering. So what he was actually saying is, God, you don't want anybody to bring any lamb. You don't want anybody to wring the neck of any turtle dove. You don't want any of those things. Hebrews 7 says it explicitly, he says, you don't want any of these things, you have prepared a body for me. So what he was saying is, and according to Psalm 40 as well, he says, in the fullness of the scripture, or actually in the, in, in the Hebrew it says, in the heading, in the title of the book, it is written about me. It would be like driving into Malmesbury, you know, and you just go to the first house you see, you open the mailbox there, you take mail out of the box, and you open it up, and you start to read, and you say, oh my goodness, you know, I haven't paid the bank this month. And you see another summons there, and whatever, and your life is all in turmoil because of, look at what I received in the mail. No, no, you're reading someone else's mail that's from another town. And now you're stressing about that and wondering how you're going to pay. If we take the law, you must first look who's it addressed to. In the heading, what does it say? It says, unto Jesus. So Jesus said, in the volume of the book, in the heading of the book, it is written about me. You don't want sacrifice. You don't want offering. You don't actually even want the tithe. What you have prepared is a body for me, prepared to break the curse. All these laws, all these sacrifices, talks about what Jesus Christ had to come and do to save man. It was his law or his prescription on how to bring salvation to mankind. That's what it says. And if we refuse to read it like that, we will be utterly confused and the church will be doomed to guilt. Guilt will become the father of our actions and our thoughts and the whole thing will never work and people will be so deeply upset and say, what's wrong with God? This morning we were talking about, uh, you know, people that become very antagonistic towards church. You can't go to church. Church is like this, and church is like that, and church is like that. And 
you know, last night I listened to a, a very a nice um, thing on, 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 on one of my friend's posts on Facebook. And uh, this lady also got very hurt in church. And then um, this musician, well, the musician said this thing, said, listen, you know, I've realized that uh, you can have a band that makes the perfect music. And then you can take that music and you can go into a soundproof studio and you can take $5,000 worth of speakers and you can listen to this music in the clearest form. You can play it over a sound system and it will become, it will be very close to the original. Not like the original, but very close. And then you can take it and play it on a phone for somebody. The m music is still authentic, but the speaker is messed up. So it doesn't help we get upset with the authentic music because of the device it plays through. And this is what has happened, you know. We find, we get this device so broken down in mixture with the old legalism that when it is preached, it is such a distorted message that we want to confuse the message with the device it plays through. I hope you hear what I'm saying. When we look at what Jesus Christ has come to do for us, in Malachi 3, we must see Him restoring the priesthood. This is what it was all about. Malachi 3, in short, is this. Listen, guys, you've messed up the priesthood. You've even messed up the type and the shadow. I'm fed up with this. I am cutting you guys out as priests. And I am restoring the original priesthood as I have intended it, which was, for those of you who want to, guys who want to be technical, which is the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And I am restoring that priesthood now. And let me explain to you how it will happen. If the true tithe can come to the storehouse, there can be meat in my house. Who is the house of God? We are. Amen. If the true tithe can come to the storehouse, that tithe will be something the house of God can eat. There will be meat in the house of God. And then Jesus comes with this astounding thing he said in John 6. I thank God it was recorded. He said this. My flesh is meat indeed. So what Jesus was saying is, I never wanted anybody actually to tithe what this was all about. It was actually about the body that was prepared for man so that the curse could be broken from their backs and that body will be meat that they can eat in remembrance of what I've done for them and so shall the curse what is the curse? Being under the law, be broken from their backs. And then God says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. You know, under law, you resist sin. Under grace, God resists sin for you. I don't have to bind the devil of my money every day. The devil is also mukhayah. We've got lessons on how to chase the devil. Makes me think of, of, of an example I forgot about, but now I'm reminded of it. It's, it's like going to the beach. And you find people swimming there. It's, and you say, they're really training. And you say, what are you busy with? He says, no man, you know, I've got this 
we've got this thing, you know, that there's the person who can swim from here to New York can get $5 million. You know, we've got people here that can swim 100 miles now. Really going well. In the meantime, somebody went to New York, got all the money and put it on the shore. And now you're busy swimming to New York. You know, even if you can get it, once you get there, it's not there. It's where you are. He brought salvation close. He brought blessing close to us. He's not a God of separation. He's the one that says, I'll stop what separates you, this flow of sin, and then you can cross over without any water on your feet. In dry land. Glory to God. So here we can clearly see Malachi 3 talks about Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus. Those of you that want to go and study this out, you can go and see, the Bible says they bring ye, the word ye there, I've preached it many times, I just feel to, to do it again, it says bring ye, that word ye in the Hebrew is, is two Hebrew characters, that word is used over 7,000 times in the Old Testament, I think it's translated 14 or 17 times. It's the word used the most in the Bible and almost never translated very simple reason is the word actually has got no meaning. It's just two characters, Olive and Tav. Olive, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, put into Greek, Alpha Omega. Amen. Bring Alpha Omega, the tithe, into the storehouse. In the Hebrew it says that that sign, that word is a sign of a futuristic event. Go and study it out. Take Thyre's Greek definitions. Go and type that in. Look at the root word. This is what it says. An omen. A sign of a futuristic event. A sign of something. They don't know. It's like me writing you a letter and in the middle of nowhere I just write AZ. 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 For no reason. And then Jesus comes and says, I am the olive and the tough. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That word olive tough was translated twice in that verse. First bring ye all the tithe into the storehouse and then the other, other word which was translated was where it says um, if I will not open you, the word you, if I will not open you the windows of heaven. So what he was saying is Jesus. This is the Father speaking to Jesus. When Jesus read this, he didn't read what is God telling people. He said, I'm reading this to see what I must do to save people. For in the volume of the book is written about me. It was God's command unto Jesus. Let me tell you, if Jesus would go in his time, you know, Jesus in his time, just a, just a fact, in his time, he couldn't tithe. Do you know why Jesus could never tithe? Because he didn't own land. Now that he had any cattle, now that he had any grain, he was not a farmer. Only farmers could tithe. Plus, if Jesus would have received a tithe from anybody, the Pharisees would have murdered him the very same day. Because he's stealing from somebody, and only the Levites were allowed to receive tithes. And he was from the tribe of Judah. He never received a tithe when he was on the earth. Now did he ever give a tithe because he was the tithe. (laughs) 
You know, this hearing this can make you think as if, have I ever heard any truth? You know, because we've been deceived by this for so many years. You know, and, and, and we, we can't look into that truth. It says that if I will not open you, if I, he says, Allah Tav, bring meat to my people, that they can eat that meat. And prove me here with, the Father says, Jesus, would you come and provide your body as meat to people that they can eat? And prove me here with Jesus, says the Father to Jesus. If I will not take that body and open that body up, so they will be pour out a blessing out of that body, that there will not be enough room or people to receive the blessing that's poured out out of the body that was opened up upon the cross in Jesus Christ. That's what that means. Glory to God. I'm not going to, I don't have time to do that, oh, but let me quickly do that. Just to prove to you that tithing was, the tithe was what you had to eat. Uh, Deuteronomy 14. It says here, 14 verse 21, But you shall not eat of any of the things, oh, sorry, verse 22, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your seed. Now this is basically laying down what the tithe is, how to tithe. Malachi 3, you guys didn't tithe right, okay? Okay, now let's go to the prerequisite. How should you tithe? You shall not eat, sorry, verse 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your seed that the field brings forth year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he shall choose to place his name there, the tithe of your corn and of your wine and of your oil and of the firstling of your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Beautiful there, he says, but what he actually was saying is you will not be able to fear God without the tithe. You will not be able to have respect for God without the tithe. Now it makes sense. Amen. Now it makes perfect sense. Without Jesus coming, how could we ever respect God? Without His flesh and we partaking of His flesh, you could never have real respect for God. No, the Bible says that God came and sanctified His name. Does His name need sanctification? No, His name is clean. But the way in which His name was preached, His name became dirty in the minds of people. And by Him sending His Son, He cleansed His name. He sanctified His name again by taking away the sin of all people, loving all people, inviting all people to the banquet. So what will He do with your tithe? You will eat your tithe. Verse 23. Verse 24, if the way be too far for you, that you're not able to carry all this tithe, which the Lord has, um, which, if the way, sorry, verse 24, if the way be too long for you, so you're not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from you, which the Lord your God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord God has blessed you, then shall you turn it into money. First mention here that tithing is money. And you will bind the money in your hand, and you shall go up 
to the place which the Lord your God shall choose. And you shall bestow this tithe money for whatsoever your soul lusts after, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever your soul desires, and you shall eat that tithe there before the Lord your God, and you will rejoice, you and your household. Thank you, Jesus. So what is the tithe? The tithe was whatever you desired and could eat. Look what it actually was saying here, and this is type in the shadow. You'll take that tithe money, and then you will go to the place where the Lord your God has shown you and your whole family, and you will have a party to the point that we can see you are happy. That's, what is, that's what's actually written there. Because the type and the shadow of it, I'm not saying, uh, uh, I'm not saying that. Leave your brandy at home. Okay, I'm not saying get drunk at church, please. You know, you, you must always say what you say and say what you don't say. So what this is talking about is the absolute bliss when you can eat the meat provided at the storehouse. That's what the type and the shadow. The type and the shadow is, when you eat this, I want to see your joy. That's what God had in mind. He had in mind, I will provide my flesh to the storehouse, and they will eat my flesh, and be exceedingly joyful, having great joy there and their whole household. That's what the type and the shadow of that verse. Then it goes on and it says, and I'm ending off with this. In the third year, every third year, you will take the tithe and you will not eat it. Because now it's another type and shadow again. But you will bring it or lay it at the gates of your city. So that the widow, the orphan, the stranger and the Levite, for he has no inheritance can come and eat it. Now what does that talk about? Jesus, in the third year of his ministry, was crucified outside of the gates of Jerusalem and provided meat for those who by their own power could not feed themselves. Talking about who? Mankind! For they had no inheritance, but he provided his body as the inheritance so that we can eat it in remembrance of God. And this beauty was used ignorantly, mostly ignorantly, to manipulate the church into building projects, into feeding, into all those kind of things. Which I am, I am for that. I am for, I'm about to go on a mission trip to Zambia. You know, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to reach out. We're going to see so, win souls. We're taking clothes there. I'm going to bless those people. I absolutely believe in that. But it is wrong to use guilt to get God's people to live like God. Yes, sir. God has not supplied guilt to the church to do something. He has supplied His very nature and His very being to the church so that the church can experience what it is to be exactly like Him. Like I said two weeks or three weeks ago, that we can feel what it feels to have the gut-tearing 
compassion that moved the Almighty to stretch out His hand and embrace a leper. Why do we want to rob the church from that? Because we've only got one thing. We've got something to pay at the end of the month. Grace can pay everything. Grace can pay. The generosity that is born from a true love relationship between the Father and you is more than enough, way more than enough than what the church would ever need to reach the whole globe. One of the best things that ever happened to me is when contentment settled in my heart. I found that I'm not chasing growth, just loving the one in front of me. That's all. Just love the one in front of you. And when you see again, God manifests His already built kingdom in your life. You know, I, you know, for a pastor to say this, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's a very radical thing I'm about to say. People say, you're crazy to say this, especially on the air. Are you crazy? You know, the other day I was driving, and I felt the Lord said to me, what will you do if I give you $100,000 right now? It's a million bucks. I said, Lord, nothing different than what I'm doing right now. It's not the lack of money that keeps me away from what I want to do. I'm living my passion. Glory to God. And as the passion is for something else or more or whatever God provides. That's it. Nothing more. You know, the life that God has come to bring to us. The wisdom that's from above is first peaceable. First peaceable. That's it. I want to encourage you never to allow anything that's got the faintest form of guilt in your life. You're a king's kid, Matt. You're a co-owner of holiness. He became a co-owner of the very righteousness of God. That's a one hour session just to explain that. A co-owner of God's righteousness. You became, a, you became the very dwelling place of the Almighty. You are someone that the Almighty is not ashamed of. God is not scared to be trapped red-handed at your house. He wants to be at your house. He wants to fellowship with you. He loves you. I want to encourage you when it comes to generosity. Never to have guilt as the foundation of your generosity. Now those two words are actually contradicting each other. But for the lack of a better word, I want to explain this. This way. Never let guilt be the father of your giving. 
When you feel the love of God and the generosity of God rise in your heart as this awesome thing that you are expecting God to do in you because you want to experience His quality of life, all you do is you live what you feel in your heart. You give accordingly. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. You know what that means? You know, I remember years ago, and let me end off for a second time. Years ago I would preach that God loves a cheerful giver and I would hear it. And then I felt, I'll better get my smile ready when I give. (laughs) What what, What Paul was actually saying is, God doesn't want you sad. That's what he was actually saying. If the need of that person and you are at a place where money is, you're just in a place where you're stressed out, you know. God doesn't want to add more stress to you. Leave it then. And let God love you. And you get set free. And grace will come upon you. And you will also come to a place where you can enjoy what it is to have a a compassion that pushes you forward that you cannot but help people and give and be generous. We don't have to fake it till we make it. Glory to God. I'm not settling for a life where I give by manipulation and control and neither am I settling for a life wherein I am bound by fear of not having. I am free. Free to love. Free to give. Free not to be manipulated and controlled. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the honor of knowing this word. Thank you so much for the honor of preaching this and that you've gifted me to share this with people. I just feel by the Holy Spirit I want to say this to you here and people watching by the web. The vision I have is not to lead you to me. I'm just pointing you to Jesus. Have your own relationship with God. Father, I want to thank you as everybody has heard this word. That this word will just ignite a fire of belief, a fire of joy, a fire of your quality of life exploding into them. As pertaining to finances, the fire where there's absolutely no more guilt or fear. Where they know that the warm embrace of the Almighty includes all provision. Thank you for that. I also thank you, Father, that those that have and feel generosity in their hearts can be encouraged to give. And to help those around them where they see need or where they feel prompted to give. And that you've enabled us not to just be givers, but to experience your quality of life. You are a good God. Lord, I think of people that say, I wish I never lived. I wish I just never existed. It would be better than the guilt and the turmoil I live in. If you never existed, you never had the opportunity to know what it feels to feel like Him.
That's the opportunity God has come to give you. Thank you, Father. Amen and amen. Uh, those of you that want to give, you can give in the back. If you want to order the CD, um, please do so and spread this to as many people as possible. If you're watching via the internet, uh, please share this if you feel you've got the guts to do it. Um, you know, with some of your friends. Uh, I know some people, they love what I preach, but, but the association sometimes just a little bit too much. Just, just do it. You know, people will be set free. You'll be set free. And, um, and let's see, let's see, those, especially those watching by the internet, let's just see many people uh, being touched by this message and let's see the, the world being set free. God bless all of you. Amen. Thank you so much.